Welcome to the Ecobot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists and continue in our journey in respect to the convergence of technology and wetland science. I'm your host, Jeremy Shavey, and on today's episode, we discuss the beauty of tech that is simple, intuitive, and enhances our workflow as scientists. Good technology should enable a seamless flow in conjunction with our work, almost invisible to us as users. Bad technology, however, will just get in the way, adding to the stresses of collecting data and extreme weather on the fly. And when, though we may be having fun in the field, we are trying to be as efficient as possible. We do not want something that is going to make our work more difficult. In today's episode, we will discuss various wetland delineation, assessment, and monitoring technologies, as well as their application within the context of wetland mitigation banking. Joining me today are Drew Haley with Mitigation Resources of North America, Victoria Colangelo with the Mitigation Banking Group, Susan Marie Stedman with NOAA, Nicole Church with Snyder and Associates, Tara Alden with Kimley Horn, Michael Sprague with Trout Headwaters, and Kay Hoveter with the Florida Association of Mitigation Bankers. To start us off, Kay will give us a brief overview of wetland mitigation banking. So I think most of us probably know what wetland mitigation is, um, but I think it's helpful to provide an overview before we launch into our discussion on mitigation banking itself, mostly because mitigation, or as we're gonna probably really term it here, compensatory mitigation, because it includes all aquatic resources, wetlands, streams, um, and species habitat. It's the foundational regulatory driver for banking itself. Wetlands and streams became protected with the passage of the Clean Water Act in 1972. Section 404 of the Clean Water Act prohibits the discharge of dredged or filled material into waters of the U.S. unless a permit is issued by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Authorized unavoidable impacts to aquatic resources, such as wetlands and streams, require compensatory mitigation to replace the loss of wetland functions in the watershed. Basically, our national policy is to mitigate the loss of streams, wetlands, and certain wildlife habitat caused by the construction of necessary infrastructure and residential and commercial development. Mitigation is what provides the delicate balance between economic development and conserving our critical natural assets. So let's talk a little bit about the authorized compensatory mitigation. Those are permittee responsible, mitigation bank credits, and in lieu fee credits. Nicole's gonna offer some more insight about these types of mitigations. Permittee responsible mitigation means the applicant offsets loss of wetlands or streams from their project on the same site or offsite. This can be very expensive. Initial costs include mitigation planning documentation, engineering, potential purchase of property or right away, and construction. All of this takes a lot of time. Once constructed, sites are required to be maintained, which involves spending money on vegetation management and potentially stabilization, as well as monitoring for success. Emergent wetlands are monitored for a minimum of five years and 10 years for forested wetlands. Streams can vary. On-site PRM is almost always less expensive than off-site due to property acquisition, but both can have issues. And if PRM fails, you start over with another site 
or purchase mitigation bank credits if available. All of that can be avoided with mitigation banking. Applicants are not responsible for mitigation success. They write a check and they walk away. The project moves forward with no additional time loss or prolonged costs for maintenance and monitoring. Okay, what's that hierarchy look like? So in 2008, the Corps and EPA established a mitigation hierarchy. The top priority for compensatory mitigation is the purchase of mitigation bank credits. Mitigation banks offer regulators the assurance of long-term success. There's little to no time lag between the environmental impact and restoration. For the impact project owner, as Nicole mentioned, bank credits provide predictable fixed costs, typically reduce time to permit by up to 50%, and completely transfers the cost, risk, and liability from the permittee to the mitigation banker. The second preferred option is in-lieu fee credits. The in-lieu fee program sponsors are typically public agencies or NGOs who collect money from multiple permittees and pull those resources to build a mitigation site. Much like bank credits and lieu fee credits have a predictable fixed cost and transfers the liability from the project owner to the in-lieu fee sponsor. Permittee responsible on-site and off-site mitigation kind of round out the last two spots. For many of the, the reasons that Nicole alluded to, permittee responsible mitigation faces unpredictable costs, increased permitting time, and the permittee retains all liability. So we've touched on wetland mitigation and stream mitigation and looked at the different mitigation options available. Now Nicole's going to take a deeper dive into mitigation banks itself. What is a mitigation bank? Mitigation banks are property that can be improved in some capacity for stream or wetland creation, restoration, or enhancement on a large scale. Preservation is sometimes an option. Improvements are proposed through a prospectus document which discusses all baseline information, including concept design and needs assessment. Ultimately, banks are approved with a mitigation banking instrument, abbreviated MBI. This is the binding agreement between the sponsor and the federal government. The MBI contains detailed information regarding performance standards and financial assurances of the bank. The mitigation bank approval process from start to finish takes approximately two years. Once signed, a percent of the credits are released and many, they can be sold to help offset those costs. Credits may only be sold within a specified service area, which is usually comprised of several watersheds. Banks have to continue to meet performance standards in order for credits to be released. This information is documented in an annual monitoring report, which is submitted to agencies for review. It's interesting to note that 70% of mitigation bank sponsors are private entities. Both private and public sponsors find value, both economically and environmentally, to develop mitigation banks. Selling credits is an investment, and the average life of a mitigation bank is approximately 10 years. Continually meeting performance standards during the monitoring phase results in success, and eventually mitigation banks should be self-sustaining with minimal maintenance required. Kay, what can you tell us about mitigation banking from a national perspective? Currently, there's over 1,500 approved mitigation banks throughout the U.S., and these banks represent approximately 1 million conserved acres and have provided offsets to over 60,000 projects over the last 25 years. Having the opportunity to provide market studies throughout the nation, I have quickly learned 
that none of the 45 core districts are exactly alike. For example, in the Jacksonville district alone, there are six unique methods used to evaluate wetland credits generated by a mitigation bank. Credit types is yet another field that presents such differences. Some districts keep it simple, defining credits as either wetland or stream, while others, like the Wilmington district, specify stream bank credits as either cool water, cold water, or warm water. These are just a few examples of the complexities that must be navigated. Although we have provided just a mere glimpse of the banking world, we hope we have offered some insights into wetland mitigation and the role mitigation banking plays in it. Thank you, uh, Kay and Nicole. That's uh, the, uh, the expression that comes to mind is, is sipping from a fire hose. There's a ton of information there and appreciate that kind of uh, crash course. So now I'd like to move into uh, a couple of case studies of mitigation banks. Uh, that uh, I think will, will be great uh, now that we have that kind of foundation. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Drew Haley, and I am the Director of Operations for Mitigation Resources of North America. We are a mitigation banking company with sites in Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee. Today, I will be speaking about the Yakanukani Mitigation Bank, which is a stream and wetland bank located in Kosciuszko, Mississippi. This bank is in the Vicksburg Core District. Uh, the bank sponsor is Yakanukani Mitigation Resources, which is a subsidiary of Mitigation Resources of North America. This property is a little over 1,200 acres of bottomland hardwood wetland. With the goal of logging the property in the past, the previous landowners dug drainage channels throughout the site and spoiled this material alongside, which created berms. Now, these actions did two things. One, the berms allowed for access to more of the property, even during times of flooding. And two, the channelized sections of the wetlands and streams allowed for the water to exit the property quicker. Because of these actions, the owners were able to successfully log their timber. Now, the negative side of this is that cha these changes led to aggradation of several of the stream channels, as well as a loss of hydrology in certain areas of the wetlands. This logging also allows for a natural regeneration of trees, which leads to a dominance of certain species, in particular sweet gum, as well as a higher presence of invasive species. Once Mitigation Resources of North America purchased the property, our goal was to remove the man-made berms, reconnect the historic hydrology, uh, reconnect the historic stream channels, and replant a diverse list of vegetation that mimics a natural bottomland hardwood forest. We are almost 50-50 on our enhancement versus preservation, which is a really great quality of the site. A majority of our reference material for our performance standards is actually based on areas within this site. So this allows us to see as we are making these enhancements to these streams, what our goals are for the long run all within the same property. Just a quick timeline of the project of, of the Yakanukani Bank. So field work and data collection was what initially started. And that includes collection of baseline information, design information for the streams, reference reach data. All that takes about one year. That is sub subsequently followed by roughly one year of permitting. Final permit approval was obtained in 2018 and construction followed in the summer of 19. 
Now construction took around six months to complete, which is a little slow. To say construction on this site was complicated would be an understatement. Obviously this is a uh, bottomland hardwood wetland area. So it is very prone to flooding given the channelization of the Yakanukini River to the west and streams throughout, this place floods very, very fast. Construction was followed by planting of different tree species from the bottomland hardwood planting list. After implementation activities had taken place, we move into the maintenance and monitoring period of the bank or what we call the bank operation. Now for the Vicksburg district, this is a 10 year monitoring and credit release schedule for wetlands and a five year monitoring and credit release schedule for streams. The bank will be considered closed when all credits have been sold. At that point, it will be turned over to a long-term steward that will manage the property in perpetuity. There's several channels and berms across this site that have impacted this site in a negative way, but we are on the road to recovery with this site and it will be a success. All right, my honor to meet, uh, to introduce uh, Michael Sprague from the uh, Trout Headwaters. So, Michael? Pleasure to be with you today. Um, as uh, Jeremy said, my name is Mike Sprague. I uh, am the founder and CEO of uh, uh, Trout Headwaters. We've, uh, I guess, put about 550 ecological restoration projects to ground now in about 36 states um, over the last 25 uh, years or so. How do you plan for ecological restoration at a watershed scale and enable successful ecological improvement in perpetuity. After all, that's what a mitigation bank uh, really must achieve. Choosing the proper bank site, of course, is a huge and important step. Like wetland banks, the focus here, the focus of, for this bank uh, under Section 404 of the Clean Water Act and within the 2008 final mitigation rule is streams. The offsets that are created here are for, of course, unavoidable environmental impacts and those uh, to streams, uh, channel associated wetlands, riparian forests, uh, and wildlife habitats. So welcome to the Thai River watershed and to the Tillman property in Virginia. This project involves about uh, 440 acres within the bank site, some six miles of uh, stream ultimately about uh, 19 million or so square feet of restored riparian buffer. And we're leveraging um, round numbers for this project, about 45 million environmental data points. Um, here using uh, an analytics platform that THI built something called uh, EcoBlue Analyst. Regulatory compliance requirements for mitigation banking are quite strict. Um, this single uh, project permit, the title work, the maps, the models, the uh, property protections, the restoration plans, and so forth, uh, probably something north of 1,100 pages. There are, as all of you know, I think, lots of ways to, to define the success of a project. Here, as elsewhere, we, we measure these quantitatively from stem counts to percentage of in, uh, invasive species covers to, to acres of uh, riparian area restored. But the overriding goal for each and every project, you know, beyond cost effectiveness, beyond is it scientifically defensible, beyond 
is, is have we improved the resources on the property, on the site? Have we done that ecologically? Have we initiated and enabled ecological lift? Now, at our firm, restoration design uses a lot of technologies um, in, a, in a fairly wide range of application and on projects, as I mentioned, streams, wetlands, habitats uh, across the US. Uh, this project, for example, we use data collectors and drones, probes, uh, Esri Explorer and collector apps. We used Arc uh, GIS desktop and online, AutoCAD, Civil 3D, EcoBlue Analyst, as I mentioned, and some others, you know, HECRAS for hydro hydraulic modeling, um, O365 and so on. We've installed some 57,000 uh, new uh, wetland and uh, riparian forbs, shrubs, uh, uh, trees um, already uh, just since uh, mid-2019. We've removed all of the debris and trash, the refuse of, of many decades, frankly, on this site uh, uh, that was found in the streams, buffers, um, so forth. The livestock have all been uh, fenced out and that required, as you can imagine, uh, many, many miles of um, new fencing to be installed outside of the wetlands, uh, streams, and um, buffers. So in addition to that, active stream restoration is ongoing. We'll put another oh, 75,000 stems, uh, complete the active restoration work on the floodplains and channels, and continue activities like managing for invasives and so forth moving forward. The data collection and uh, reporting, as has been mentioned previously, is ongoing as well. And all of that document, all of that documentation is requisite uh, for a mitigation bank. Monitoring is, uh, of course, the vital feedback uh, loop to ensure project success and, and enable smart and, and adaptive, iterative project design and management. Our, our strategy for more than 25 years now has has been to, to jumpstart nature's processes of, of renewal and repair. We, we do this by taking away disturbances, by removing impacts, by restarting plant communities, by prudent management, by giving nature back those, those basic building blocks that she needs and allowing development to occur naturally and, and over time. So while active restoration is a, is a part of this project and pretty much every other mitigation project that I'm aware of, informed adaptive resource management is and it, and it will always be uh, the silver bullet for successful ecological restoration. Uh, this is especially true as uh, climate changes more rapidly. Um, no manner of active restoration is ever gonna survive or succeed. Um, without that prudent management. And so, so even with all this planning and the adaptive management, uh, the advantages of non-wasting endowments and other mechanisms uh, to ensure the success in perpetuity of, of the Thai River Mitigation Bank site, there are plenty of natural or, or let's say climate cause challenges, right? Increased drought, flooding, hurricanes, and, and probably a host of others. To add to that, challenge, there is a sometimes challenging human environment. Um, this too, this human environment, sometimes subject to unexpected changes. As uh, some of you may already know, despite the fact that uh, ecological restoration is environmentally beneficial and that we have ecosystems at some level sitting today at the tipping point, 
ecological restoration and mitigation banking are surprisingly and heavily regulated, even though often these are private investments occurring on private land. So to underline those regulatory and policy environments are too ever-changing. Thank you, Jeremy. All right, now it's my honor to introduce Susan Marie Stamen and Tara Alden um, to speak to us about current state of things. So I'll turn it over to you ladies. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, I am a wetland scientist and policy analyst with um, NOAA's National Marine Fisheries Service. I've worked in wetland policy for um, more years than, than I, I care to recount. And uh, Tara, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Tara Alden. I'm currently sitting in the Columbia, South Carolina office of Kimley Horn. I am a environmental uh, practice builder is what we call, but the primary focus of my practice is on mitigation and other natural resources. And I'm just gonna pull out my favorite Aldo Leopold quote, which uh, both sets the somewhat of the tone and also um, somewhat of the source, I believe, of the roving policy and the difficulty and the fire hose nature of mitigation. A thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends other, otherwise. We're going to start by um, just talking a little bit more about the status of mitigation banking. Um, you heard a little bit about that in our first presentation. As Kay and Nicole showed earlier, mitigation banks exist across the United States with some notable exceptions in um, some interior regions. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And also uh, New England has fewer than you might imagine. And there are technical and policy and scientific reasons for that as well. And as Nicole and Kay covered the kind of the process and the logistics of mitigation banking, I want to step back and think about the drivers. And um, I worked in, directly in mitigation banking, not as a consultant, but for mitigation bankers for about 15 years. And I worked for a gentleman by the name of George Howard, who was one of the founders of Restoration Systems, and whenever, um, or is one of the founders, whenever George would talk to a big audience of mitigation bankers, he would say, nobody ever wakes up in the morning wanting a bowl of wetlands, it's not oatmeal. And that goes to say that the market for mitigation credits is driven by policy and regulations. Nobody is doing mitigation banking for solely the good of the world. It, it does enable permits. It's a really neat thing to do because we're doing the good of the world improvement, but it does have a, regulated, a regulatory driver and it is required by permitting. And I think that's important to remember. Um, so you have to have a strong um, regulatory infrastructure to, be, to have successful mitigation bank projects. The other thing you have to have that I think sometimes we forget about is you have to have surface water. When we go back to the map of banks across the country, it's those arid middle regions that um, don't have mitigation banks for wetlands and streams because they don't have wetlands and streams in enough abundance to support it. And then you also have to have the impacts happening. You know, you have to, a bank in a very rural area with nothing foreseen from permits isn't gonna sell credit. 
So those are the primary, three primary aspects to think about when um, deciding whether or not you have a market for mitigation banking. And those things are extremely site and watershed specific. Mitig developing a mitigation bank in its simplest terms is like developing a neighborhood. You have to do the entitlement, you produce the goods, you build the houses, and then you sell the credits, not housing, credits at that point. And you bring in your civil engineers and, every, and you know, your roadway engineers and your traffic engineers. And they're the experts, they know what they're doing. In mitigation banking, again, we're talking about science. And many of us on this call you know, have been doing it for, oh, some of us 30 years, some of us 20, some of us 10, but for a while. And we, in the process of putting in a mitigation bank, we're overseen by an interagency review team as laid out in the 2008 mitigation rule. Each of them govern a different set of natural resources or cultural resources. Each of them comes with that resource in mind and also some understanding of the ecosystems. Therefore, everybody has a thought and opinion. Most of the resources are public trust resources and so rightly so. So we'll come back to the uncertainty, but just remember we're working with all these different agencies who are very vested in what we're doing. I'm gonna talk now a little bit about policy regulation and all that means to uncertainty. Wetlands and mitigation and policy and regulations go all the way back to the Rivers and Harbors Act, um, and which was uh, first used to um, require permit for filling submerged lands. Um, the definition of, or the concept of mitigation um, was first codified in the National Environmental Policy Act. And one of the um, interesting communication um, things that happens in the world of mitigation banking is, is the word mitigation is usually used as shorthand for compensatory mitigation um, in NEPA, and then in the definition of mitigation that was later applied to the Clean Water Act, mitigation actually more broadly means avoid and minimize and then compensate. But um, in almost everything you will hear from us and from anyone working in this field with, when they say mitigation, they mean compensatory mitigation. But it is important to keep in mind that mitigation actually means avoid and minimize first because many of the natural resource managers who are suspicious of mitigation banking are suspicious because they think it means skipping over avoidance and minimization, and it does not. There are additional um, regulations about mitigation in an Army EPA MOA, and then um, everything is kind of laid out and brought together in the Army EPA mitigation rule that was published in 2008. However, there are also state wetland regulations. There are some state mitigation requirements. There can even be county mitigation requirements where counties don't want compensation for impacts that occur in their county to go outside their county. So um, you're dealing with a pretty wide landscape of, um, and, and I guess it would be a layered landscape of policy and regulations when it comes to wetlands and mitigation. When anybody has a conversation about the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, that is 
what aquatic resources are regulated by the Clean Water Act. You'll um, usually hear one or both of these terms, navigable waters and waters of the United States. Navigable waters um, comes up in the Rivers and Harbors Act. And then it's also mentioned in the first iteration of the Clean Water Act, the Federal Water Pollution Control Act, where navigable waters are said to include waters of the United States. Sadly, neither of those terms is defined in either of those acts. So not surprisingly, that led to a lot of questions which resulted in some guidance and some regulations followed by lawsuits and court decisions, more guidance and regulations, more lawsuits, more court decisions. And, and this has been going on for decades. The overall trend has been one of increasing the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act outward from mean high water, which is what the original reach of the Rivers and Harbors Act was, um, outward to other aquatic resources that are considered necessary to support the goals of the Clean Water Act. The, the two most commonly disputed um, points in terms of the reach of the Clean Water Act are isolated wetlands, um, wetlands that have no surface connection to a river or stream, and um, ephemeral streams. So those um, parts of the stream that are either way up in the headwaters or out in the desert somewhere and do not run with water year-round. And so that brings us to the last two major changes to our, the interpretation of um, the jurisdictional reach of the Clean Water Act. Um, under the Obama administration, um, EPA and the Corps put out a Waters of the United States rule that was intended to expand jurisdiction to try to address some aquatic resources that had been left out of jurisdiction, but were considered important to achieving the goals of the Clean Water Act. There are many, many people who think that rule went too far. Um, and under the last administration, that rule was withdrawn and um, the last administration put out a navigable waters rule that pulled back from the expansion of jurisdiction under the waters of the United States rule. But there are many, many people who think that rule pulled back too far. Finally, one thing that um, I should also mention is that there is a provision in the Clean Water Act that allows states to assume the um, regulatory authority over um, most waters in a state. Um, you're not allowed to assume regulatory authority over tidal waters, but, um, but non-tidal waters. Um, and this has been accomplished by Michigan and New Jersey. And um, so that changes the landscape also, if you're not dealing with the Corps of Engineers in terms of, um, you know, chairing your, your interagency review team or, um, or having the Corps of Engineers being the one who has the final say in, in mitigation requirements and things like that. So where are we now? 
Well, the 2020 definition of jurisdiction is currently in effect in all but one state. Um, Colorado managed to get an injunction against the implementation of the 2020 navigable waters rule. So in Colorado, um, we're dealing with pre-215 definition of um, the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act. Where we're going um, is going to depend on what happens in response to an executive order that the Biden administration put out that um, is, has asked federal agencies to take a look at any actions that were taken between January 20th, 2017 and January 20th, 2021, AKA the last administration and, um, and look at how they are going to affect the protection of natural resources, particularly with respect to human health and climate change. So, um, there are a lot of ways this could go in terms of jurisdiction. <laughs> there are a lot of ways it has gone in the past, um, but um, what it's really going to depend on is um, what EPA and the Corps decide to do after reviewing um, where we are right now. And I'm gonna kick it back to Tara. There's probably a lot of consultants who mostly delineate and write permits. And so I wanna kind of draw that connection of why this changing uncertainty, roving uh, regulation of the actual resource is so difficult. I do both. I delineate and permit impact, delineate waters and permit impacts and entitle, help entitle mitigation banks and help design mitigation banks. Uh, on the ground side, on the delineation side, you know, you are working for your client in whatever that their end use might be. And it's important that you differentiate from for them regulated areas from non-regulated areas, and that's mostly the uplands. If an, if an isolated wetland is not protected by state or federal law, it's fair game um, for development without a permit. It's just the way it works. Um, many states have closed that in South Carolina, a wetland that's isolated or not connected doesn't need a permit outside of the coastal zone. So from the landowner who's looking for permits and development, uh, jurisdiction is really important uh, just to help identify. The situation with ephemeral streams is important. If you're a mitigation provider and you put your mitigation in the ground prior to 2020 and you included ephemeral stream channels and you were in a place where there was you know, some other protection over connected wetlands, or your wetlands were connected that are now isolated, you've just lost a bunch of houses, credits. Um, so from a mitigation provider, knowing what resources are regulated in your jurisdiction is extremely important for certainty. And I think that just ties together this issue uh, between the permits and the credits needed. And so just want to kind of go back to there. Wanted to go ahead and again, talk about um, the uncertainty part of having so many different um, agencies involved and from commenting on permits, from regulating resources, from being advocates. Um, I honestly think that that is where the most risk and time and money sits in the mitigation banking world. 
Um, it can be very individual driven um, and it just is where you can get a lot of things out of left field, which is why going back to who we are as professionals and scientists and engineers and policymakers and attorneys is really important in building your reputation and starting from the beginning in relationship with your interagency review team. The name of the game is minimizing uncertainty and risk. And hopefully we've helped some folks with that today. As things are systems and things are all interconnected, there are new markets for ecosystem services. And this is kind of, is the neat thing is the understanding through regulations protecting the value of natural resources to understanding that those values aren't esoteric or maybes, those values are real. You know, ecosystem, wetlands, store flood waters, clean water, they do very important things that we have built infrastructure, pipes and treatment systems to do, wetlands can do that. Um, the markets that are emerging, conservation banking, that's a tough one because, you know, one of the things we said is you need an abundance of the resources by definition, endangered species aren't abundant. Um, water quality trading is a big one, and that's looking at the constituents of the pollutant constituents of water and using natural processes to treat and sell credits. Carbon is um, same, but with an airshed, so your market is much bigger because it's the sky. Um, and then Susan Marie was going to talk a little bit about the NERDA and restoration banking. Just to mention that um, there are some banks on the West Coast, um, most notably, I think, in the Portland area where they're taking advantage of the fact that um, there are responsible parties who are required to compensate for um, past actions, the release of toxic chemicals and, and things like that. And banks can be used um, with certain restrictions to, to sell credits to compensate for those impacts as well. So that's, um, that's distinguished from mitigation banking by being called restoration banking and it's part of the natural resource damage assessments process and those are markets are created by um, the uh, responsible parties under the oil pollution act and uh, <laughs> and circla and i'm not going to test my memory to tell you what circla stands for um, so i mean the, the bottom line is that mitigation banking started this all many many years ago um, but that approach to um, providing compensatory credits to a wider um, bunch of um, buyers is, is expanding. And then finally, I want to um, get this on the record that I was informed by Wade Hammer that the injunction on the 2020 jurisdictional use of that jurisdiction in Colorado was overturned. So um, all 50 states are now using the 2020 jurisdictional guidance. Thank you for listening to the EcoBot podcast. In the next episode, we'll hear more from our panel as they answer questions on wetland mitigation banking. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. If you'd like to learn more about how EcoBot is helping to transform the industry and see what we can do to help your company, you can find us at www ecobotapp.com. I'm Jeremy Shavy, and I'll see you next time on the Ecobot Podcast.